Confusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exotic. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Diffusion, the National Science Show. If you like your science fresh, interesting, uncluttered, unprejudiced and relevant, join us for the next half hour and enjoy the sensation of your mind expanding as we pour it into your brain. In this edition, all I can say is two words, space probes and syphilis. And chocolate. John August will continue our series on the history of syphilis, which you may even clap. I'll finish our series on space probes, and Ian Wolfe will look at the neurophysiology of the chocolate muncher. What more can I say except my name's Watmore, Lachlan Watmore, and first up we have the news with Pat Ruby. Global cooling. The Northern Hemisphere might get colder within the next 10 years. This is contrary to what the greenhouse effect predicts. This cooling effect could be caused by the slowing down of the Gulf Stream. The Gulf Stream acts like a conveyor belt in the Atlantic, transporting warm surface water from the tropical Atlantic to the Northern Atlantic, and returning cooler, deep water from the north to the tropics. The discovery was made by a team of German scientists, including Mojib Latif, professor of the Leibniz Institute of Marine Sciences in Kiel, and Johann Jungklaus of the Max Planck Institute for Meteorology in Hamburg. Professor Latif explains the cooling effect isn't going to counterbalance the man-made effects on climate change. This cooling period might slow down the rise in temperature over the next decade, but will probably not last beyond this time. Climate experts believe that long-term climate change will see the Earth's temperature rise by between 1.1 and 6.4 degrees by the year 2100. But in the short term, there will be periods of slow and fast rises in temperature, and this cooling period might be one of those. Critics of the research claim that the saltiness of the North Atlantic is also affecting how fast the Gulf Stream flows. Melted water from Greenland glaciers and the Siberian permafrost is changing the salinity of the ocean and might be slowing down the Gulf Stream. The research has been published in the British journal Nature. Birds seeing magnetism. Migratory birds might be able to see the magnetic fields of the Earth and use them to guide their flight patterns. This extra sense could be generated by cryptochromes, light-sensitive proteins that are found in plants and animals. In migratory garden warblers, cryptochromes are present in the retina within their eyes. The cells containing cryptochromes are active at dusk when the birds are orientating themselves for flight. Peter Hoare and colleagues from the University of Oxford, the UK, have found that a protein that is very similar to a cryptochrome, called a carotenoid porphyrin fullerene triad, is sensitive to weak magnetism. When the protein is stimulated by a specific type of light, it produces two free radicals. The concentration of these free radicals can be controlled by a magnetic field. Hoare and his team theorised that blue light, typically seen at dusk, could produce these free radicals from the cryptochromes in birds' eyes. These free radicals would be sensitive to the strength of the Earth's magnetic field at a given latitude. The birds would then know how far north or south they were and could adjust their flight pattern accordingly. This theory is controversial because the magnetic field of the Earth is weak and scientists previously thought it wouldn't be strong enough to affect the cryptochromes alone. 
chaos in a bubble. Scientists have discovered what might be happening when champagne is bubbling and chocolate is melting. These are examples of what is called first-order phase transitions, when atoms change from an ordered state into a disordered state. Tiny atomic bubbles, known as nucleation events, are the first structures to form in a disordered liquid, like melting chocolate and bubbling champagne. And these initiate a transient state of matter between the ordered and disordered states. The process occurs within a few hundred femtoseconds, which is one quadrillionth of a second. An international collaboration of scientists led by Aaron Lindbergh made the discovery. They used a laser to change at the semiconductor indium antimonide into a disordered liquid, and then beamed X-rays onto it to make pictures of the nucleation events. This research could lead to improved manufacturing processes for making better electronics. I'm here talking to George Graves, who's an electronic engineer with a whole bunch of uh, different radio telescopes and tracking stations in Australia. Welcome to Diffusion, George. Nice to have you here. Thank you, Lachlan. Now, first of all, can you tell me what is the difference between an optical telescope and a radio telescope? They, they both pick up radiation. The sun as well as... Well, just to take an example like this. The sun that we see hmm. gives out visible light. And we, we know it gives out, if you look at a rainbow, the different colours of visible light. It also gives out infrared, which keeps us warm, and ultraviolet, which also gives the sun cancers and things like if we stay for too long. But as well as giving out visible light, it gives out other wavelengths as well. And it gives out longer wavelengths, which we call radio waves. So in the radio wavelengths, they're the same as the visible light, it's visible light, mm -hmm. except it's a different frequency or a different wavelength. So basically so, you're looking at a different type of light or a different light, different yeah. non-visible electromagnetic radiation. That's right, yes. Okay. That's right. That's a, and because we can look at stars and things and other galaxies and whatever in visible light, that gives us some, some of the information about the object we're looking at. But if you look at it in radio waves... We get a different lot of information and we can learn more about it and sometimes people launch spacecraft so they can look at it in gamma rays which is yet a, a different wavelength again or x-rays gamma rays are short waves above ultraviolet yes that's okay. right yeah and what do what do radio waves tell us that visible rays don't we can actually pick up a whole lot of interesting things we can pick up like broadband kind of noise, which was give us a an idea of where the gas is in the galaxy, we can actually pick up molecular lines. Now these are, if we have different molecules, such as carbon monoxide, a whole host of different compounds I found. Dare I say helium? Yes, helium. Yes, hydrogen. Lots of lots of different things. Yeah, and there's been about a hundred different molecules, well over a hundred different molecules now found in in molecular clouds, for instance. And we can actually each one of these molecules gives out a particular frequency or wavelength when it's excited, 
or it, sometimes it can absorb at that frequency also. And so from that we can actually work out where the gas is and where these different molecules are in, in dust clouds. Mm -hmm. And we can actually do other things as well. Because you know if, you, if, you're, if a car is coming towards you or a train, the sound changes. As it comes towards you, it's a Doppler effect. The Doppler shift. Yes. Well, the same thing happens to these molecular lines. And so if they look at the gas in a, in a distant galaxy, the part of the gas that is coming towards us, the, the hydrogen, the line is shifted slightly higher in, in, in frequency effectively. Mm -hmm. And the part of the galaxy is going away, this is rotating, it will be shifted downwards. And so it's red shifted and the stuff coming towards us is a bit more shifted towards blue effectively if you wish to when people talk about the red shift now from that we can actually work out the rate of rotation of the galaxy using a radio telescope how do you use doppler shift with the radio wave part of it as opposed to the visible part of it or is it exactly the same just different wavelengths it's similar in radio waves in radio telescopes but firstly, there are diff obviously differences. They've got to be much larger because the wavelengths are longer. Mm -hmm. So that's why they're bigger. And we've got to make them big to get much detail. And that's why, um, and they also click, if you make them bigger, they click smaller signals. But as well as just picking up one particular frequency, we usually put the signals through computers, which will give out a spectrum of what we pick up. We could actually put it through other hardware as well to get a spectrum. But nowadays, a lot of people just use computers to do it. And so you can actually pick out these lines where they shifted. And of course, not the lines from just one molecule, but there's multiple molecules quite often there as well. So you get lots of different lines. Last week on the show, I spoke about the Galileo space probe and I described how the directional antenna, the umbrella-shaped directional antenna failed to deploy and they had to use a backup system, which was an omnidirectional antenna, which reduced the data flow back to Earth of all the various bits and pieces they were collecting, photographs and things like that, down from kilobits per second to just bits per second. However, that data flow was tidied up by engineers on Earth, and I understand you were one of those engineers. You helped out with the arraying of two, two radio telescopes to clean up the data rate? Yeah, I was one of the group of people on our... That, that work on the, that make the equipment mm. that that that's, that gets installed on parks. So I was one of the bunch, and by by putting a, a receiver on the parks antenna, which is sixty four meters in diameter, we're able to increase the data rate from that spacecraft up to. It was very slow by what people think is communication dates rates now, mm. but they were able to get almost all their all their data and all their all their photographs back. What it, what it is, the signal that we receive at Parks and the signal that we receive at Tipton Villa is actually the same signal from the spacecraft. But the noise from the receivers is different. Now, the noise, what do people mean by noise? Well, for, for some of us that used to have these old-fashioned record players, they used to hiss in the background. Right, eh? And with old-fashioned tapes as well. That's right, yes. Well, that's just, it's like hiss. And it's just random stuff. Now, all our, all amplifiers have a little bit of this background 
noise to them. But by curling the, the receivers, particularly the first amplifiers, by curling these amplifiers down to about minus 260 degrees centigrade, we've reduced the noise of the receivers of, of these amplifiers down. And how did you cool it down to, what was it, minus 260 degrees centigrade? Yeah. Well, how did you do that? Uh, we use a, a two-stage helium refrigerator system to do it. And I think you mentioned to me earlier that's only about 13 or 15 degrees above absolute zero? That's right, yeah. Yes. Okay. So you, you froze down the equipment effectively. Yeah, so we usually do that anyway. Yeah. But also, and that reduces the noise from the receiver. But the noise... So then we have two antennas with the same signals with different noise on, different, on, the, on each receiver. And so by, doing, by comparing the, the two signals... We actually had to reduce the effective noise to it, so we get our signal to noise ratio much better. And, and that was that was used to get the data rate much better for the Galileo spacecraft. And what was the data rate you you finally came out with? Well, that was done by by the NASA people. I think that this is very vague because it's a while ago, and I'm forgetting things now. I think it's <laughs> I think it's about 160 bits. Um, per minute, oh, so bits per second. Oh, okay. So for what was that? The early nineties, late late eighties, early nineties. That's pretty good. Yeah, it was meant to be collar uh, bits, collar board from memory. George, thanks very much for talking to us on Diffusion. Thank you, Lachlan. Now, John August continues the story of syphilis. Previously, John told us about the syphilis microbe, the disease it caused, and some of its distant history. John now focuses on recent history, including world history and some details of its story in Australia. But first, John tackles some recent world history, starting with when syphilis was first identified as a separate disease. term syphilis and venereal disease originally described several different diseases. Philippe Record, the American-born French venereologist, wrote an influential classification of syphilis separating it from gonorrhea, which was believed to be a symptom of syphilis, around 1850, but he was also the first to separate out the primary, secondary and tertiary symptoms. But it was only in 1905 that the treponine which caused the disease was discovered. Various advances were made over the years, but I'll focus on the story of one particular researcher, Hideo Noguchi. Hideo was born in 1876 in one of Japan's lesser islands, and his father abandoned the family when he learnt another child was due. Living in poverty and neglected as a child, he fell into a brazier, or firebox. His left hand was burned to a stump, and his right hand was injured almost to the point of uselessness. Shunned at school, Hideo was contemplating suicide when a surgeon came to the village and treated his right hand successfully. 
Hideo was so filled with gratitude that there and then he committed himself to medicine, saying that he would become a Napoleon who would save instead of kill. Penniless, he worked in a pharmacy till the owner advanced him the funds to study medicine. He eventually ended up at the Rockefeller Foundation for Medical Research in the United States. He there produced the first pure culture of the syphilitic tryponine and discovered the syphilitic nature of general paralysis, proving the presence of the tryponine in brain tissue of patients in 1913. Sadly, he died at the age of 52 in 1928 infected with yellow fever, the very disease which he had travelled to Africa in order to study. During World War II, many soldiers developed syphilis or gonorrhea. Syphilis, depending on its stage of development, had less direct effect on the ability of soldiers to function effectively, but they were nevertheless isolated. During this time, soldiers were treated with arsenic-based drugs such as solvarsin. While penicillin was effective against syphilis, it dreams that solvarsin was the drug of choice. Solvarsin was the first drug to emerge from a systematic study of possible chemical compounds, looking for active compounds and then trying to change their formula to reduce toxic side effects. It was discovered in Germany by the Paul researcher Paul Ehrlich, winner of the 1908 Nobel Prize. During the First World War, Harter, a Japanese scientist, was forced to leave the laboratories in Germany in 1911 as Japan was fighting with the Allies in the First World War. The active part of Solvarsin is an arsenic double hydroxyl group which bonds to a pair of sulfur atoms which are close together. Thyrorhodoxin is a molecule used by the syphilis microbe for respiration and it does appear that the salvarsin active component binds to pairs of exposed sulfur atoms which form part of the molecule. Salvarsin has a relatively low mammalian toxicity partially because mammals have an alternate biochemical pathway to this one keyed on thyrorhodoxin, but also it seems just plain luck that salvarsin is not toxic to mammals in other ways. In fact, salvarsin is an active compound that's able to kill many other things. Having said this, the mode of action of salvarsin is in fact not well understood, and while these speculations tell a story which makes sense, there's no proof that it's in fact true. Penicillin was particularly effective against gonorrhea as it multiplied rapidly, unlike syphilis. In fact, it was possible to treat a gonorrhea patient and then return them to service more rapidly than would a wounded soldier. This was a source of some ethical dilemmas in treatment. Our understanding of syphilis has been influenced by two major studies. The Oslo study, conducted from 1891 to 1951, and the Tuskegee study, conducted from 1933 to 1972. The Oslo study surveyed those cases where the nature of the syphilis was unknown, but it was treated as soon as it was diagnosed. Nevertheless, there was a good deal to find out. The Tuskegee study, however, was rather bizarre and controversial, as it involved deliberately withholding treatment on 431 black men who had latent syphilis, in order to understand the statistics of the onset of tertiary symptoms. It was certainly racist, but even if they treat blacks and whites equally, withholding treatment still has problems. The study was the trigger for the development of guidelines for the experimentation on humans.
Thanks for that, John. We should hear the concluding episode of John's series on syphilis in the next week or so. Your appreciation for chocolate can now be predicted with blood and urine tests. Scientists at Nestle's Research Centre in Switzerland have found a connection between gut bacteria and whether or not you desire chocolate. They've also coined a nifty new word, nutri-metabonomics. Nutri-metabonomics, for the science of what you want to eat. So they start with your phenotype. This is your body as determined by the interaction of your genes and the environment you live in. Then they add metabolism, which is the way your body absorbs food. From this they get metabotype. Are you following? It's now logical to jump to the way that your body handles drugs to get pharmacometabonomics. And thus inevitably, human dietary habits and their interaction with your body can be labelled nutri-metabonomics. They surveyed 75 men about their food preferences. Of these men, 22 had a high enough score as either chocolate-desiring or chocolate-indifferent to be selected for the five-day trial. Half of the group was selected because they never eat chocolate, while the other half enjoys chocolate daily. Women were excluded so as to avoid any confusion from the notorious effect of the menstrual cycle on women's metabolism and desire for chocolate. Their diets were rigidly controlled over five days. On day one, they either ate 50 grams of chocolate or 50 grams of bread as a placebo, followed by a washout day without chocolate or placebo. Day three was more chocolate, followed by another washout day, and then day five was the final dose of chocolate or placebo bread. The subjects were otherwise fed the same diet to control for effects of other foods and banned from anything with caffeine or nicotine or alcohol. Blood and urine samples were taken every day. The weird thing is that the metabolic residue in the blood and urine that showed you as a chocolate-desiring or chocolate-indifferent individual didn't go away when you ate chocolate or when you didn't. It stayed the same for every individual, suggesting metabolic imprinting. Something other than the chocolate makes you this way. It's likely to be gut bacteria pulling your strings. They found that the amino acid glycine was higher in chocolate desirers, while taurine, an active ingredient in energy drinks, was higher in chocolate in different people. Also, chocolate-desiring people had lower levels of the bad cholesterol, LDL. All of these point the way to the possibility that different species of gut bacteria digest different nutrients for us, their hosts. The research hasn't established how the gut bacteria are manipulating the brains of chocolate-desiring people, but Nestle will find out. Even though this study focused on chocolate, after all it was funded by Nestle, this approach could be used for any foods. The chemistry of desire for chocolate, when laid bare, could be used to make you desire any food product at all. Who needs advertising? Toot sweets sound like what they are So do lollies in a lollipop jar Gingerbread men have 
gingerbread sound we found Sugar, plum, cinnamon and lemon tart Tell you what they are right from the start And your name does the same for you By coincidence, truly scrumptious You're truly, truly scrumptious Scrumptious as a cherry peach parfait When you're near us It's so delicious Honest, truly You're the answer to our wishes Truly scrumptious And that's all from us at this edition of Diffusion. Contributing to this edition were John August, Ian Wolfe, Patrick Ruby and yours truly, Lachlan Watmore. Diffusion is broadcast here in Sydney on 2SER and nationally on the Community Radio Network. If you've got any feedback for us with passionate praise or wild criticism or maybe something in between, send us an email at diffusion, that's diffusion at 2SER.com, diffusion at 2SER.com, or alternatively you can download our podcast at www.diffusionradio.com, that's www.diffusionradio.com. This edition of Diffusion was produced and panelled by me, Lachlan Watmore, here in the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Join us next week for more good sciencey goodness here on Diffusion. Don't forget this lovely day.